Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. I'm betting a lot of people who listen to this podcast use the Ohio Turnpike with some regularity. And there's some questionable stuff going on there. It's something we'll be talking about on this episode of Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with colleagues Elisa Garvin and Courtney Estafi. It's Wednesday. Happy hump day. Yay. Waiting for that warm weekend. Yeah, I keep waiting for the warm weather, but it keeps being in the 30s. I don't get it. It's almost May. Well, let's get to the Turnpike. Should users of the Ohio Turnpike be worried about identity theft now that the company collecting all of the credit card and easy pass payments has been sold to a company in Singapore? Lisa, this is concerning given how badly identity theft has happened in Ohio with Ohio departments like the unemployment office. Now we're shipping the collections to a company in Singapore? That's correct. Transcor, which maintains the toll collection and customer services operations on the Turnpike and has done so since 1975, was sold earlier this year to Singapore Technologies Engineering for $2.6 billion. That sale was finalized last month. So, And Transcor has a current contract with the Turnpike through 2026. But president of Transcor, Tracy Marks, says there's a national security agreement that they signed with with this the sale uh, that there's a ban on access to customer data by overseas companies and nothing is sourced outside of the USA. Any violations of this national agreement could mean fines equal to the purchase, which is $2.6 billion. However, on the other hand, Ohio Turnpike officials who met earlier this week were surprised by the sale and concerned. They're checking to see whether Transcor was required to notify the the commission of the sale because they were obviously surprised by it. Yeah, I, I have a hard time seeing how a company has a firewall within itself. I, I mean, it just has mm-hmm. that work. If you're if you're the master company and this is one of your subsidiaries, how do you set it up so that you can't look at what's going on? I, I think it's I'm glad that the Turnpike commissioners were alerted to this. Um, mm-hmm. This does seem like it's a risk. I'm a regular Turnpike user. Courtney, I think you said you were on the Turnpike in a big traffic jam mm-hmm. over the weekend. <laughs> and you don't want to think of your credit card information and your if you're an easy pass, your address and all that stuff floating around in a place that the U.S. has no say over, no protection over. And, you know, hackers look for databases like this. This would be like a gold mine to them. And any determined hacker, as we know, can access information if they want to. Also on the uh, foreign companies on the Ohio Turnpike front, Apple Green USA Welcome Centers, they have an agreement to operate two service plaza concessions at Great Lakes and Towpath, but they were denied because they're based in Ireland. Yeah, I I mean, I can't imagine that the Turnpike would have approved the contract with a Singapore-based company company it's just did they put a clause in to their contract that says it must be u.s based it sounds like they're looking at their options you know, the last thing you want is for everybody who's riding on the turnpike 
to cancel their their credit card use and start paying with cash again. I mean, that would make mm. even longer lines, Courtney. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> But it seems like they're kind of making a patriotic statement, or at least Jerry Hirubi, who is the the uh, chair of the the, uh, the Turnpike sorry, Commission. I'm, I'm, thank you. <laughs> he said, "quote that the flag is being flown pretty loudly here in Ohio." So it sounds like they're taking a stand for America first. Well, and this company does like eighty percent of these collections across the the nation. Uh, it pretty much has the monopoly on the collections, although it sounds like there's another company out there, at least maybe we could work with them. We'll have to follow this up. It's today in Ohio. What is one Cuyahoga County councilman proposing to force a new jail onto a toxic site now that members of the Justice Siting Committee are balking at that plan? Courtney, this came about because the public defender who represents many of the people in the jail is concerned about having them sleep at a site that was so toxic 40 years ago the state wouldn't build a prison there. The the pushback that, that resulted from that is alarming. Well, uh, County Councilman Mike Gallagher came out after after the public defender raised those concerns saying, let's just let's just potentially scrap the steering committee we've set up to decide the fate of the jail and as the county county council has the final say on this anyway so he's saying to heck with this steering committee group that includes the public defender prosecutor top judge and let's move forward on our own we have a duty to take care of inmates it's our decision anyways let's dissolve this group what what's interesting is I, i i'd be surprised if the county council in the face of the prosecutor the public defender the judges and other members of this committee saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. We didn't know about 40 years ago. We didn't know that this was so toxic. They wouldn't put a prison there. We don't really know what's on this site. Let's hit the brakes. Let's make sure before we go down this road. I mean, they're, they're looking out for the safety of the prisoners. And I get it. The jail we have now is not a great place for safety. But the answer isn't to build another unsafe jail. What's weird to me is they have an easy option. There's a site in Garfield Heights that's clean. Garfield Heights wants them. It's like, why don't you just switch and go there? The other thing that's unsaid, you know, Jeff Applebaum is the, the contractor on this thing. And he knows that after this year, we're going to have a new county executive. And the new county executive is very likely to not want to work with him because they've said so. So he's trying to get this thing locked in so he gets paid. That's not a good reason to move forward. Well, you know what else is left unsaid here? You know, Colin Sweeney didn't include this in his letter, but he did tell, you know, Cleveland.com that he, Prosecutor Mike O'Malley and, you know, top administrative judge of the Common Pleas Court, Brendan Sheehan, had a private meeting with County Council President Pernell Jones earlier this month. And, and they talked over with Jones about whether moving forward with the jail would hinder the county's ability to pay for their new digs, a new courthouse. So that wasn't mentioned in the in the letter. There are things at play here that that are, are, are not being said, you know, outwardly at the steering committee. Yeah, I, I believe that the judges and Mike O'Malley, they're worried that there'll be no money left to build the courthouse, which is in very, very bad shape. It has been for years and so they were leveraging some of this controversy for that. The problem is that nobody at the county knew about what happened 40 years ago until we reported it. 
And that that raises serious questions about their due diligence. I don't understand why Gallagher is brushing that aside. It's legitimate to be concerned about where these people will be sleeping. The sheriff, I'm sure, doesn't want to have his guards working on a toxic site either. They're there day after day after day. And we're not talking about a year's delay. All they're, they're saying is, let's not rush to this site yet. Let's do some testing. Let's find out what's there. Let's find out if it can be remediated. There was talk in one of their meetings about putting in one of those barriers like you do in landfills. Well, that's not permanent. Those things wear out. So what happens in 30 years? Do we have toxins rising to the surface? Surprising the back and forth that's going on here between members of the siting committee. But to just throw away the siting committee because you don't like where it's headed seems like a radical decision. You know, when I was doing some reporting on this a couple weeks ago, the, the, the chief civil prosecutor under Mike O'Malley who's been working with environmental consultants who are already starting to look at the toxicity of the site and what can be done to remediate it. Dave Lambert told me any site can be remediated to make it safe. It's just a matter of how much money and how much money that's spent here is ultimately the purview of county council, not the prosecutor's office. And it's how much time, you know, back in the the 40 years ago, they said it would take three years to clean the site. How long would it take to, to do it this time? So it's all the unknowns that are out there, which is why I think some of the siting committee members, even I think Blaine Griffin is is back on his heels going, whoa, whoa, what are we doing? So we'll have to see. He's on the committee as well. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What's the reaction by Cleveland travelers to the end of the mask mandate on air travel? And did RTA drop its mask mandate as fast as the airlines did? Lisa? Most people didn't waste any time in the wake of federal judge. There was a federal judge in Florida that overturned the public transportation mask mandate. And almost immediately after that ruling, services across Cleveland and the nation were lifted. I mean, all major airlines immediately lifted their mask mandate. Hopkins no longer has one. Cleveland RTA still recommends masks, but they did lift the mandate. Also, Lake Tran and Akron Metro RTAs did the same thing. But uh, Dr. Keith Armitage, who's a travel medicine expert with University Hospitals, said that high-risk travelers should still wear N95 and KN95 masks. He felt like lifting the mandate kind of jumps the gun. That's a quote from him, but he said we're getting close. So, you know, our reporters talked to several passengers, varying responses. Some people said they're going to keep the mask on. They don't feel safe in a crowded airplane, and they might, you know, be, uh, you know, have immunocompromised issues. And others were like thrilled. They're like, thank God we can take off the mask and breathe again. What threw me about this is the airline saying we have such good filtration in our planes that there's not a problem. When pretty much every story I've ever read about the air in planes is that it's not really that well filtered. I guess we're at a point where it's really personal choice. If you feel like you need to wear a mask, you'll wear a mask. If you don't want to wear a mask, you won't wear a mask. There's 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 still people saying you should wear a mask to protect others. But the N95 masks, the KN95 masks, protect the wearer. If you don't want to breathe what your co-passengers are exhaling, that's the way to avoid it. 
Uh, it was, and the RTA did the same thing, but they're recommending, right, mask wearing? Yes, yes. And actually, I saw a be- uh, you know a bus come down Mayfield the other day, and you know they have the little you know uh, display across the front. It said masks recommended, so they're still doing that. And Hopkins Airport Director Robert Kennedy kind of breathed a sigh of relief because he said the mandate did result in some very hostile encounters, you know, when they were trying to enforce the mandate. So that takes the enforcement issue out of their hands. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if the federal government appeals the decision. Uh, You know, this was done by one judge in Florida for the whole country, um, or whether they just let it stand because people are done with the mandates anyway. You are listening to Today in Ohio. When planners announced a while back that they would include racial equity as a measure in transportation projects, we wondered how they might do that. Now they've come up with an innovative tool. Courtney, I'm going to leave it to you to explain how it works. Yeah, this is this is pretty nifty. So uh, a group of Northeast Ohio nonprofits, including Team NEO and the Fund for Our Economic Future, have created this, in partnership with others, have created this online tool that companies can use when they're figuring out where to locate you know, new offices, new factories, other locations. And what this online tool offers are, are measures of... of racial equity and carbon emissions, environmental related stuff. So it basically looks at, you you know, if the goal is to hire a more racially, ethnically diverse workforce, the way to do that is to put your new location as close as you can to that workforce. So this tool lets you kind of met out where those folks are in relation to where you want to locate. And then also what the commute needs are for that workforce. Is this going to ratchet up emissions, require a 30-minute drive by car, for example, that maybe is a little less accessible to to, to folks of different groups? Um, You know, it it lets people kind of tweak and play with locations to make sure that their locations coincide with needs of the workforce and commute needs. So each address you put in, you get... A numeric rating of of its equity rating, which which will be fascinating, right? If when people come in for approval of projects and and their the developers are being looked at for this, I would imagine there'll be some serious quibbling about the way they come up with the measurement. Sure, and and I'm sure it's just. It, 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 you know, they're saying it's a tool. They're not saying it's the end-all, be-all. But, yeah, the devil is probably in the details there. Uh, look, it's, it's really cool that they've come up with a way to actually measure it. You, you can always change parameters and play around. But if I'm a developer that ends up at a low score, I'm going to do everything I can, right, to, to, to torpedo this system. So it, it'll be interesting to watch as this gets battle-hardened in the approval process. But... I, I'm just blown away that they came up with a seemingly logical system for measuring it. Uh, Steve Litt has a story about it on Cleveland.com. It's worth reading. It's Today in Ohio. Mayfield Heights is a thriving suburb. Lisa, so why is a Walmart closing its huge store at Som Center Road and Mayfield Road? This was one of the highest interest or the highest interest story on our website yesterday. Lots of people were trying to figure out what's going on with Walmart. 
Yeah, and there was a lot of uh, action on Facebook and Nextdoor and other social media platforms as well. This is more or less my neighborhood. Um, the Walmart at 6594 Mayfield, which is right at Som Center Road, will be closing on May 20th. Um, this is the second store in Ohio to be closed. There's one in Cincinnati that will be closing this week. But the reason that was given, uh, actually, they called Mayfield Heights Mayor Anthony DeSico, and I hope I'm not pronouncing his name wrong, but he said he found out yesterday morning a Walmart representative called him and said, hey, you know, the store is underperforming financially. We're going to close it next month. But DeSico says, well, you know, the store is pretty robust, and it's in a very prominent location. I mean, it's right off of 271. And the issue with him, with the mayor, he says, you know, these big box stores, when they close, they're really hard to release for anything other than another big box store. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's busy all the time, although I wouldn't say it's huge. There's actually a bigger one in University Heights at, uh, on Warrensville. So, uh, you know, it's not like they're people will not have a Walmart in the area. But yeah, the mayor was surprised. He said, how could it be underperforming? It's busy all the time, which I can attest it is. Yeah, I, I was surprised by this because whenever I've been by there, it, it's crowded. I wonder if Mayfield Heights and the people that live in that vicinity are more Target shoppers because the Target is right around the corner from right that. Right there. Mm-hmm. And that they just are getting the business... But this is the problem with Walmarts. There's one in Cleveland Heights that closed when they opened the one that you mentioned on Warrensville Road, Hankins in South Euclid. But when it's empty, it's just a hulking dinosaur of a building that has no mm-hmm. use. And so it, it takes up an enormous amount of space. That's one of the primest corners in Northeast Ohio, Som Center and Mayfield mm-hmm. Roads. And what are you going to do? Tear it down to, to build something that's more amenable? I mean, they're going to be saddled with something that I bet is empty for a long time for a while and that's what the mayor's worried about and you know they just tore down the old Mayland shopping center further west on Mayfield and they're redeveloping that and looking for tenants for that huge piece of property so you know they're trying to market that that property and then they'll have to market the Walmart property so yeah he's a little bit concerned yeah I, that, it was a shocker and clearly people were talking about it what was the buzz on social media were people upset Uh, very upset and first it started as a rumor and you know people were saying they couldn't figure out why it was closed or being closed because they said it's always busy it's always busy but the rumor was is what was the rumor i don't remember but it wasn't about underperformance uh i don't remember what it was but yeah a lot of talk on next door and facebook all right you're listening to today in ohio Today is the day federal judges set as a deadline for Ohio to figure out its legislative maps, which it has not done. So what has been happening this week as the deadline approaches? Courtney, Andrew Tobias put together a story to let people know where things stand as the deadline approaches. Yep, and as Andrew reported, not much has been happening. So the federal court gave the redistricting commission until today what it said was a drop dead date um after which you know it might intervene and start making decisions about how legislative races are going to be handled this year and um in the meantime the the republicans haven't sat down to convene with the redistricting commission since the ohio supreme court last week rejected proposed maps for the fourth time so andrew reports that this inactivity by the Republicans on the redistricting commission, it signals that they're punting to the federal court. They want the federal court here to decide this mm. for them. But 
the Ohio Supreme Court has urged the federal court not to do that. Right. We Bob Higgs has a story we'll probably publish today that looks at the unusual nature of the Supreme Court opinion in which it laid out all the reasons the federal court really doesn't have jurisdiction or reason to interfere. They, they, and if the judges at the federal court accepted it, they'd be rewarding the Republicans for failing to do their job. I'm a little bit surprised that the Ohio Supreme Court is not moving a little faster on its contempt part of this, where they've asked the Republicans to show cause why they shouldn't be held in contempt for defying the court, defying the Constitution. The opinion last week made it clear. Just get back to where you were. You were almost there and they've done nothing. I mean, they're clearly you're saying, yeah, we're not listening to you, Ohio Supreme Court. We're counting on the federal judges. It's really kind of ugly. Yeah, and 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 the independent map maker, makers that were brought in for this last round of map maping, map making, <laughs> um, they said they're available. They're ready to get back to work, but but the redistricting commission hasn't called them back in to, to wrap that process up. Yeah, you know, Mike DeWine has been out with COVID, but the others could clearly have called the meeting. They're they're this is their hail mary play. It'll be interesting to see whether the federal judges reward the misbehavior or if they say. You ought to be listening to your Ohio Supreme Court and get this done. We'll be talking about it tomorrow on Today in Ohio. A shocker out of Pepper Pike. What is Rabbi Stephen Weiss of the Benai Jeshurun Synagogue accused of? Lisa, this was another story on our site yesterday that went like wildfire. People were surprised to see it. 60-year-old Rabbi Stephen Weiss was arrested Monday in an undercover sting operation. He thought he was setting up a meeting with a 15-year-old boy, but it turned out it was the Ohio Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force he was talking to. So he was arrested when he went for the meetup. Uh, He is charged with unlawful sexual conduct with a minor and importuning and possession of criminal tools. He's currently free on $50,000 bond and wearing an ankle monitor. Um, Our reporters looked at, you know, his website you know there was a page about him on the the website he was the former president of united united synagogue youth regional chapter also established camp rama a summer camp for jewish children so little concerning there he used social media to find this 15 year old boy and a meet agreed to meet with him or the agents uh for sex that later that day yeah, I uh, this one was a surprise. But we, we, we've often reported about these kinds of things with the Catholic Church, and it doesn't seem to arise as much in, in other religions. But this mm, this true. guy is well-known. I mean, he's, he's somebody that I think a lot of people uh, on the East Side really looked up to, and what a shock that, that he's accused of. Of course, innocent until proven guilty, but looks bad for him. Right. And, you know, he he was a champion for Jewish children. He created a lot of groups. He was an advocate for Jewish children. And, you know, in in the light of this arrest, that doesn't look good. Right. That's what predators do. They they arrange to be involved with children because it sets up easy prey for them. But wow, what a that's a big one. Mm -hmm. It's today in Ohio. We have another case of an adult using a position to take advantage of children. Courtney, how much time will a former Mayfield Heights teacher spend in prison for collecting lewd pictures of children, including some former students? 
Yeah, uh, former teacher Daniel Carlson's going to prison for 10 years with the possibility of, you know, another three and a half years if he's considered still a threat. This is a really, really unsettling case. So Carson used fake social media accounts, threats, and money to coerce kids into sending him nude photographs. You know, investigators eventually found that there were 23 victims and eight between the ages of 14 and 17. He's already pleaded guilty to extortion, compelling prostitution, tampering with evidence, and child pornography charges. And, you know, these victims, it sounds like, were extraordinarily impacted by by what he did. One girl, we, we learned in court, attempted suicide. Yeah, this this is very similar to that Catholic priest case on the on the west side. The guy who, when he was in prison, he killed himself recently, where he he used all his wiles to get the kids to send pictures, in, in increasingly um, at stages of, of uh, nudity, I guess. And then when the kids said they didn't want to do it anymore, he threatened to publish the photos online, tagging them so the world would know they had done it. Which, let's face it, for a kid, that is about as traumatic as it can be. It's, it's the height of cruelty. He, and then he also offered one kid $15,000 to have sex with him. She said no. How did the case crumble? How did uh, this guy get caught? Yeah, so it, it looks like he sent one of the pictures he sent back to one of the victims had his face on it. She recognized him. He begged her not to out him. And then a parent came forward saying this was going on. And, and the case unraveled from there. Yeah, I, I mean, actually, 10 years seems short, and I'll be surprised if the parole commission lets him out in 13. Plus, I think you said he has to register as a sex offender pretty much for the rest of his natural days, right? Yes, 25 years there. Yeah, yeah, astounding case of an adult using their position. Think about it. We were talking about it for the podcast. This is somebody that sees children every day, sees what they're going through as they grow up, and instead of working to make their lives better, He's a predator taking advantage of him. Just a, it's like special place in hell kind of crime. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Finally, the second generation leader of Pierre's Ice Cream chatted with Sean McDonald about the company and her decision to sell it. What are some of the highlights? Lisa, I know you're a fan of Pierre's Ice Cream. Shelly Roth, what an interesting story. I mean, she, you know, she was... In New York City in the 1970s, working with Atlantic Records Marketing Department. What a great job. Anyone would have loved to have had that job. But her dad, Saul Roth, asked her to come home to Cleveland to help run and then eventually own Pierre's, which she eventually did in 1979. And then in 1991, she took over as CEO. As we reported on this podcast last week, Pierre's has been sold to a group called Ohio Processors. And Shelley Roth was very concerned about the family legacy and the Pierre's brand legacy. So she picked Ohio Processors. The owners are the Smith family, and she says that they understand core values and supporting workers and producing high-quality products. So, you know, and she said when she took over as CEO and when she came to help run in the business in the 
80s, that was very rare for a woman to succeed, you know, a male owner of a business. Usually it was a son they passed it on to or, or a son-in-law. So here she is in the early 80s, you know, running a company and then taking over as CEO. And she said she was glad that her dad had the courage and confidence to let his daughter learn the business at a time when it was rare for women to learn how to run a business. I, you think about it, you know, 30 years ago, she's right. There were very few women in leadership positions in corporate America. Uh, and she's been running that company now for three decades in Cleveland. Um, it's not somebody that we've talked a lot about over the years in, in terms of Cleveland leadership. But here she was running this company for all that time. And I imagine there were some challenges in those early years because it was such a a male-centric business world. Right. You know, and she oversaw the move of the current the current factory location is at East 65th in Euclid. That happened in 2011, so she oversaw that. And Pierre's, just FYI, is one of the few regional ice cream makers left in the USA, and Roth really wanted that legacy to continue. She also made a conscious decision to stay in Midtown Cleveland when they decided to build the factory on the east side. So she's, her heart's in Cleveland, and we love her for that. The the, it was interesting to see what she was doing before she came back, working for a record yeah. company. I don't remember. Did the story say which, which some of the artists that she was involved with? Yes, it did. And I, write, and I didn't write them down, but they were all the big artists of the early 70s. I mean, wow, that's like the perfect job for somebody who loves music and, you know, loves to work with the musicians. And for her to leave that at her father's insistence to come back to little old Cleveland to run an ice cream company is pretty remarkable. Although ultimately we did get the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame during her time here. So she still has <laughs> her foot in the door of the music industry. Good story. Check it out. Sean McDonald wrote it. It's on Cleveland.com. It'll be in the plane dealer in the next few days. I don't think it's been published yet. You're listening to Today in Ohio, and that does it for a Wednesday conversation. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We'll be back with another discussion on Thursday. Thursday.